The Gospel of John is framed around these seven interactions that happen that Jesus had with individual people. And each one of these conversations establishes this pattern for how God relates to us, each of us showing the experience of what it's like to meet him, for him to know us, for us to, to know him. And when we read these encounters, you're supposed to read these encounters as if they're actually happening to you. Because behind these stores is a real living Savior who has come to break down the walls of sin to establish the relationship with you. So here in John chapter 4, what we find is what I believe is probably one of the most important of all of these six interactions that happen throughout John's gospel, is here with this woman at the well. What are we supposed to do when we see the story? How are we supposed to find ourselves within the story? What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about ourselves, especially when we talk about him being the Savior who is seeking and saving that which is lost? He's out trying to find. And by the way, if you read that text, there's one really big, important piece of that. When you watch the video and you see all the disciples coming back, you'll notice they're only coming back with themselves. Where have they been? They went into town to go grab some food, and when they come back, they just come back with what they took. When that woman went into town proclaiming the gospel that nobody wanted to hear anything she had to say, you know who, what she brought back? The whole town. The, the, the trained, the elite brought back nobody to Jesus. The one who had just met him in the moment brings him back to her place that was hopeless, that now she finds hope. I want to give you just four brief observations this morning. And number one observation of reading this text is that Jesus comes to the unlikely. He comes to the unlikely. We see that play out here in this, this clip and in this passage that this woman in the story is a Samaritan woman. That's important. As you read the story, you'll get this sense. Did you, did you notice there's a little bit of awkwardness between the conversation between Jesus and this woman? She was kind of hesitant. She was kind of like, oh, I don't want you to talk to me. I'm just here doing my thing. You go do whatever it is that you're doing. And, and there's this bit of awkwardness that, that you feel kind of build this tension. The, the reason that that's theirs is, is a few, actually. Number one, Samaritans and Jews had this long-standing feud with each other. We didn't like each other. We don't want to be around each other. So the Jewish people would avoid the Samaritans at all cost. And this feud would stretch back for centuries. We can find it back in the Old Testament. But most Jews thought of Samaritans as being second class. There, there was uh, racially and religiously, they felt they had been tainted. Because they were supposed to stay strong. And then when they had been attacked by an enemy in the Old Testament, I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was, but they were attacked and they said, do not intermarry with those who attack you. And they figured the only way to get peace with this is to do so. And they became Samaritans and the Jewish people said, hey, we didn't, you did, we don't have anything to do with you. And so the Samaritans had intermarried with Gentiles and they considered them to be half-bloods. So you're not, they didn't, they didn't think that Samaritans were real Jewish people. So they didn't deserve the same things that the Jewish people deserved. For instance, going into the temple and worshiping, which was everything for them. They also thought that if you were Jewish and you touched a Samaritan, you would now be unclean. They wouldn't even sit somewhere that a Samaritan had sat or sit in the same group of people that a Samaritan was at. Samaria was right smack in the middle of Israel. 
When you were coming from northern Israel to come down into Jerusalem, guess what city you would have to pass through? Samaria. So the Jewish people that would come from northern Israel down would just bypass the town altogether, adding one more day to their trip, just so they didn't have to have any kind of contact with these Samaritans. Um, There was racial hatred between the groups. That was common. They just did not want to interact with one another. So you got that tension that's building here, that she's Samaritan. You also have the tension that this woman is not only Samaritan, she's a woman with a bad reputation. She doesn't have the best reputations. They would walk to get water as a group. Who is with this woman? Nobody. Because she has been outcasted from her society, and she's going to the well at the hottest part of the day by herself. She has this bad reputation. So Jewish men were not allowed to discuss religious teachings with other women, especially Samaritans. And here's Jesus talking to a Samaritan, sitting with a Samaritan, talking about religion with a Samaritan who has a bad reputation. But I want you to notice something because in John chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Remember what I told you, normal Jewish people would say, I have to go around because we're not going through Samaria. But Jesus says, no, I have an agenda, I have a mission. And my mission is in Samaria. So he had to go through Samaria on the way. Jesus needed to come to Samaria. Why? For her. For her, this moment was there for the taking. The Holy Spirit had set this up. Jesus is on a rescue mission. And I don't care who you are or what your past is or how unlikely you feel you are, Jesus is looking for you. He's looking for you. You've done nothing to discredit yourself. That Jesus is on a rescue mission looking for you to bring you back into the fold, back into the family. So my observation is Jesus comes to the unlikely those that we would think the gospel wouldn't be for, those that we have shunned away, the gospel is for everybody. For God so loved the what? The world, the ethos, everybody. The gospel's for everybody, even the unlikely. And we see that here with Jesus, sitting with them. But not only do we get the observation that Jesus is with the unlikely and loves the unlikely, but Jesus knows all there is to know about you. Now, this can be terrifying on one hand, and this can be a relief on the other hand. Jesus is interacting in this conversation. Did you you notice? He knows all of her secrets. And sometimes we're so scared to, to admit things because, oh, what if God found out? Hey, bad news for you. God already knows. But he's asked us to repent. He's asked us to have this conversation with him to confess our sins. And so here, Jesus is speaking with this unlikely person, this woman of Sumerian descent, and he knows all of her secrets. He knows the very things that caused her shame. And he began speaking to those things. He knew all the ways that she felt alone. He knew her secrets. He knew her doubts. He knew her insecurities. He knew every fear that she had, even the emotions that she's feeling in this moment. He knew the very things that could have gotten her killed. And you know what could have gotten her killed? The relationship with all these men that she had been with. 
Because in those days, being caught in adultery, in some places, that was punishable by death. You remember the story of the woman that was thrown at the feet of Jesus because she was caught in an adulterous affair? And they were about to stone her, and Jesus said, I'll tell you what, if you have no sin, you go ahead and throw the stone. And then all the stones dropped that day. Because it was punishable by death. So for Jesus to know this about her was not only embarrassing to her, it was also threatening. What if, what if the word gets out? What if he begins telling people all of these things? So this encounter, it asks a question that I think we all inwardly need to ask, and it's this, is what is it like to be completely exposed in all of our sin and shame in the presence of God? What is it like for us to be completely exposed in all of our sin and in all of our shame in the very presence of God? The answer to that question is two words. It's safe. Is safe. Those sins have been pay, paid for through the blood of Jesus, and it's the safest place in the universe. How do I know that? Because I have to go to Romans chapter 8. And I have to, to lean in on what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says this, so now there is no condemnation. Let me say it again. There is no condemnation. Let's say that. There is how much condemnation is there? Why do we live like it? Why do we approach God with so much fear that he's just going to chop our heads off when we step towards the throne? Because he says this, there is no condemnation. You ready? For those who belong to Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the living, life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of our weakness and because of our sinful nature. But look what he said. So God did what the law could not do. He sends his son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, you ready? God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully, you ready? Fully, say it again, fully, say it with me, fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our, follow our sinful nature, but instead we follow the Spirit. Here's what you should pull from that verse. There's no condemnation. That the, the blood of Jesus has fully satisfied the debt that you and I owe. Fully satisfied. If Jesus is the payment that satisfies you and you're in Jesus, God can never be dissatisfied in you because he has, been, he has made the price satisfied. So he has come for un, the unlikely. He's come for you and me. And not only that, he knows all about us. And that's good that if I'm following the king, that the king knows me. Knows me by name. You'll notice in this passage, too, that Jesus comes not to judge, but to save. Oh, if there was so much judgment that you and I could have had sitting around the well that day with that woman. Because I would imagine while she's at the well by herself, the moment that the women of the village and the men of the village saw her leave, they began to grumble and gossip about her. There she goes. Look at her. Let me Snapchat you this real quick about what she did the other day. Guess whose man she was with. All these conversations. 
that probably being said about her. Don't you notice something? Jesus did not expose her to embarrass her or shame her or judge her. He exposed her to save her. And that's the conversation. John said that's why Jesus came. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Because when I go to the doctor, guess what I don't need the doctor to tell me? Hey, uh, by the way, here's your $5,000 bill. Um, diagnosis, you're sick. Right? Like, uh, listen, <laughs> I know that I'm sick. Your job is to tell me specifically why I'm sick. Jesus said, I didn't come tell the world they were sick. I don't, I don't need to tell you that you're a sinner. I don't need to remind myself that I'm a sinner. I know that I am. You know that you are. What we need to know is not that we're sinners. We need to know the remedy to the sin. And Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn this world. I didn't come to tell you that, that you're sick. I came to give you the prescription that was going to take this away. And it came through his blood. And you wonder what Jesus would say if he sat down with you and sat down with me and began having this same conversation around this well about our lives, our deepest, darkest secrets that we're so scared to talk about even in his presence because we feel that we will be condemned and forever separated from God. It wouldn't be words of condemnation or there wouldn't be words of rejection, but it would be words of acceptance because nobody in this moment was more righteous and more pure than Jesus. And today, nobody is more righteous and more pure than Jesus. Nobody. He always told the truth about sin. Did it hurt? Absolutely. You think this woman enjoyed being told about all of her mistresses and all the men in her life? Absolutely. But he always told the truth about sin, but he never compromised the commandments of God. And yet, he drew in those whose lives were filled with mistakes and with compromises. Think about the people that Jesus ministers to all throughout the Gospels. They're unlikely people. A tax collector as a disciple? Come on. You got a hothead fisherman named Peter who likes to pull knives out on people? Come on. You got Judas. Need to go any further with that? But Jesus always drew in those whose lives were filled and invited them to the table for the conversation. He was full of grace and full of truth. I think a lot of times we're too full of truth, don't you? And a lot of our conversations towards outsiders who aren't believers that we are so full of truth that there is no grace at all. And Jesus is showing us here the balance between grace and truth. Truth has to be spoken, but it needs to be seasoned with grace. And Jesus also spoke to our, the deepest needs. Our deepest needs is to be known and be loved, right? We just want to be known and loved. Somebody, how does it make you feel when somebody calls you by name? It's different than, hey, Bo. That's the Berkeley County way of calling people that you don't know their names. It's direct. When there, there's a name, because we, we want to be known and we want to be loved. Because to be known and be loved and not be loved is rejection. But to be loved and not known feels hollow. And we want someone who sees all of us, the real us, the broken us, and loves us anyway. And that's what Jesus did for us. He saw truth about this woman. He saw truth about us. And he draws us close to him in these moments. 
The last thing Jesus' church should feel like is a group of righteous, judgmental people who huddle together and condemn the world. Right? Churches that like to create their own protest signs and go protest everywhere. What, what if the world knew what the church was for instead of what the church was against? Right? What if we stood in the gap with people that we didn't necessarily believe the same thing we believe, but we trusted in the power of our Holy Spirit more than their belief system? What would that look like? I can tell you what it would look like. There would be a bunch of self-righteous Christians that would judge the mess out of us because we're standing in the gap. But here's what I would tell you, and if this offends you, I apologize. No, I don't. Read the Bible. But here's what I would tell you. If Jesus were back on this earth right now, I guarantee you he would not physically be sitting in this room right here. He would be sitting out there with the homeless, the poor, the widow. Be sitting with the person, that's, their, their whole life is falling apart. He'd be sitting with the one that's alone by the well of life, starving, thirsting for what is real. We have this messed up view of Jesus, this Western view of Jesus. Blonde hair, blue eyes, perfectly just white, ironed out robe, probably wearing some hey dudes because Jesus is just a little bit southern. My Jesus is. But he wants to draw us close and the last thing that we can do to draw people close is to be so self-righteous and so judgmental. Well, how will they know? The Holy Spirit convicts people. We were never called to do the job of the Holy Spirit. If so, Jesus wouldn't have said it's good that I go so that one greater can come and that's, that was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will condemn and judge and convict. Our job is to love and proclaim the gospel of Jesus of what he's done for us. I love my friend Sean got up in uh, Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. He says this about his church, and this is their, their saying. He says that our church is a refuge for the hurting and it's a refinery for the saints. And they do. They pull broken, hurt people. They've lost members because they pulled broken, hurt members, uh, people. And I said, what do you do about the members that left? He said, what, when we pull somebody in that doesn't believe the same way that we're ministering to and they leave, we just tell them good luck. And we love them and we'll pray for them, but they're going to be sadly mistaken when they see the Jesus in heaven. But we're, we're a church for the hurting and we're a refinery for the saints. My favorite description of the church is probably in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexual immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor the sexually perverse, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor rivalries, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You ready? This is the verse that kind of gets me. And such were some of you. Paul's like, I'm just going to go ahead and throw that on in there. But I think if Paul was rewriting this today, he would not just say, and so, and such were some of you were these things, but so was I. So was I. But listen to this. He says, so, some of you were that. I was that. But I love the comma here. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, being cleaned, you're sanctified, you have been set apart, and we've been justified. You know, there are psychologists that, that work in, um, in child, welfare, child welfare say that three of our biggest needs are this, to feel clean, to feel safe, 
and to feel special. Do you agree with that? We, we would love to have all of those things. To feel, to feel clean, to feel safe, and to feel special. And they mean this literally. Because what they have found is that kids need to know that they're in a space where they won't have dirt in their food. And they won't have someone breaking into their home. And we retain those impulses as adults. Right? That some of our deepest soul needs are to feel clean, to feel safe, and to feel special. Now that one I think we've taken too far because everybody gets a trophy in today's society and you should not. Thank you. Clean. We want to feel like an authentic person who is not phony or hiding all kinds of secrets. And we don't want to feel dirty and full of compromise. Would you agree with that? That's what we want. We want to feel safe. We want to feel like the future is going to be okay. Like we don't have to dread tomorrow or that we... We don't have something that's just going to fall and collapse on us tomorrow. Something that's just ready to drop at the moment. We want to feel safe. Would you agree with that? And to feel special. We want to matter to somebody. We want to feel like we have significance in our life, that we're not just going through the same old mundane thing. Paul tells us in the gospel that we, of, of Jesus that we get all three of these things. By his blood, we are washed. That makes us clean. We are sanctified. Each of us is set apart for him and has a purpose. And we are precious to him. He loves us because he sent his son for us. He designed us uniquely and specifically for his purposes. And there's nobody else like you. You know, nobody else has your, your fingerprints. Do you know that? Look at your thumb. You see the print on that thumb? Nobody else has that. You are a thumb body. <laughs> I just want you to remember it. And sometimes, listen, that was my best Mike Tyson impersonation. Here's what I want you to know. You, you are somebody. And even if you're a believer here this morning, I need you to hear me. You are somebody. The world says opposite. It'll try to label you and identify you as everything else in the world, but you are somebody. There's nobody like you. You are justified. You are safe. You are clean. The full condemnation of your sin has been placed on Jesus, and if you are in Christ, God can't punish you for your sin because he's already poured out the punishment on Jesus for you. If you're a believer, stop living under the bondage of sin. Jesus has already paid for that. It's like going to dang Target, buying something, and then going back in and trying to pay for it when it's already been paid for. Anybody doing that? Well, you wouldn't because it's already been paid for. So go use what you've been given. Enjoy what you've been given. He has given us eternal life. Go use it. Enjoy it. So here Jesus exposes this woman not to humiliate her but to forgive her. He was going to a cross not long from here where he's going to die for her. He's going to give his life for her for her shame, to pay the price for her sin. And if only she'd be humble enough to admit that she needed it. And that's what he's trying to get her to just admit. So to ask this question again, what is it like to be completely exposed in the presence of Jesus? It's the safest place in all of the universe. Here's our last observation that Jesus is what we're all looking for. 
We try to find whatever it is everywhere else, and we never truly find it until we find Jesus. All this woman's life, she's been searching for something to numb this empty longing that she's had, something to take away the shame. Five husbands, and she still hasn't found it. And I, I think that this woman's greatest moment of recognition came when Jesus asked about those husbands. Did you see her face? I know that wasn't a real video from that moment, but pretend with me. They had been talking about this mysterious water when Jesus said, well, you know, drink this water, you'll never thirst again. This is living water. And they're talking about this mysterious water, and suddenly he changes the subject because she wasn't getting the living water thing. So he changes it. And he says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five, and her world collapses. Because she's been found out. And the one that you're living with now is not your husband. And I think in that moment, it all made sense to her. I'll tell you why I think it all made sense to her. She'd been doing with the men in her life the same thing that she'd done every day at the well. Every afternoon, she got thirsty. She would come to the well. She would get water. She would drink. She would be satisfied. The next day, she'd get thirsty, go back to the well. She would drink. She would be satisfied. And she repeated this cycle endlessly. And this is all that she's done. This is what she's done with all the men in her life. Her soul was thirsty. It was empty. So she goes to the well of romance. She took a long drink, and it satisfied her for a moment. But then she got hurt. She got rejected, she got used, whatever happened, and so then she got thirsty again, and she comes back to the same well again and again and again, and now she's had five, and the one she's on now is not her husband, which makes him number what? Number six. What number does that make Jesus? Number seven. God's number of perfection, completion. The point is Jesus is what she's been looking for the whole time. The, the arms that she's been searching for, for in romance, have actually been in the arms of Jesus. This story, this woman, this is a picture of you and me. This is us. What have our six previous lovers left us with? Our idols. See, Jesus calls us like he called this woman to follow him. Accepting Jesus is not a blind leap in the dark. It is a step into the light, a step towards a Savior who knows everything about you and loves you anyway, loves me anyway. He never stops thinking about us. The Bible says he knows every hair on your head. Looking around the room, some of you, that's not a problem. It was there. But he can also tell you, too, every tear that you've cried. I mean, I know you love your mamas, but does she know every tear that you've ever cried? I know you love your daddies. Can they tell you the exact number of every tear that you cried? Your father God can, because he cares. He's a savior that goes to a bloody cross to die for sin so that we wouldn't have to. We listen again to John's great invitation. This invitation is the greatest invitation ever extended to anybody on earth. He says this in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. 
I love this story because she came looking for one thing, but she leaves with something else. And you notice, she said, I have to go tell everybody. She left everything that she had come for, water, and leaves her water pots and runs all the way back to tell the people who have written her off. And by the way, women in this time period were not trusted sources. They were not allowed to go before the court and testify on anybody's behalf because for some reason they didn't believe women. But she's the messenger that runs back to the city. And you know what happens? The whole town followed her. Because they too had a, a deep longing to be loved and be known. This morning, as we, as we approach Easter, today is Palm Sunday. Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem today. He would spend his final week and the people didn't get it because they were waving palm branches. And we wave palm branches, but palm branches are actually a symbol of the Maccabean revolt. It was the last time that the Jewish people said, hey, we're going to have a war and we're going to beat the Maccabeans. And they did. And so when Jesus comes into the city that on, on this day years ago, they're waving palm branches to say, here we go, we're about to fight. It's on. We're about to take out the Romans. And then Jesus, not coming in riding a stallion, comes in on the back of a donkey, hum humbling himself. And the voices that would cry out, Hosanna, 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 glory to God in the highest, in seven days would be the ones that would say, crucify him. Crucify him. Let the blood be in our hands and on the hands of our Father. Crucify that guy. Because they didn't get it. This is why Peter chopped the ear off. He thought, if I chop this ear off here in the garden, I'm going to start a revolution. He didn't get it. This woman in the store got it. Her whole town, who was separated from God, found out. And this was important because he said, she said, I can't even go to the temple to worship because of who I am. He says, there's coming a day where you won't have to go to that temple. You will worship God in spirit and in truth. Panumaka aletheia in the Greek. In spirit and in truth. We worship God where we are. He was saying, the spirit will indwell in you, in your body. And you can worship not just on that mountain or that mountain. You can worship on that mountain and that mountain and that valley and in that valley. This is what happens when the lost are found. It demands a response from us, right? And our response is to share, this is what God has done for me. I am no longer under condemnation. His blood has satisfied my sin. I can now have relationship with him, John 10, 10, to live the life, and not just a life, but a life that is abundant life. And I pray today for every person in this room, if you don't know Jesus, you've never had a personal relationship, you've never, you never surrendered your life to his lordship and said, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and king of my life. If you've not done that, I want, I want you to do that this morning. And it's really simple. It's just crying out for God and saying, hey, rescue me. Forgive me of my sin. I believe in you. Rescue me. You pray that prayer, the Bible says that he comes to us. And in that moment, we are baptized in the Spirit. We have been saved. Our name has written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The day that we get to heaven, they're going to flip the page, and there it goes. It's going to be our names there. And the Father's going to welcome us home. So I pray, number one, if you don't know Jesus, today will be the day that you surrender your life to him. Number two, if you're a believer, 
I pray that you would be open and honest with God about your struggles, about your pains, your confessions. And I pray that would cause you to leave this room just like that woman did running down the road and said, let me tell you about a man who knew everything about me and still loves me and calls me son and daughter. Would you pray with me, Father? I thank you for every person here this morning. I pray, God, that if there's anyone in the sound of my voice, that your Holy Spirit would convict them now, God, that they would give their lives to you. Surrender it right now. And Father, I pray as we, we sing this song and rejoice in the fact that our chains have been broken and we can now live in complete liberty because of your son Jesus of what he did and what we're going to celebrate this week. And also, God, just pray that those who have given their lives to Jesus this morning, that have prayed that prayer of surrender, just said, God, save me, that they would come and, and just acknowledge that in our welcome desk so that we can pray over them and help get them on their next steps and just give them that courage. And I pray in these moments, God, that you would work as we know you will. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing.